Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians together. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 this morning. Um, As you're turning there, I just want to remind you of uh, our love for you. Uh, We long to be together. By God's grace, He is continuing a work in us, uh, His saints. Uh, By God's grace, He is even increasing our love for one another and that longing uh, that we experience to be with each other. Um, We understand that this is a lack of close fellowship, and we miss that, and we desire for that to happen again, to commune with one another around the Word, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and of course, to fellowship truly together around the table. Uh, But until then, together we actually lament the situation that we're in. Um, we, we, We lament that the curse of sin is rearing its ugly head. And when we don't understand what God is doing, we don't just stop, but we call out to him. And we try to interact and call to him with a complaint, but a complaint in faith, trusting that he is over all. We complain to him with our cries, but again, we complain as one that trusts that his ways are perfect. We complain as creatures who do not understand all of his ways, the unsearchable nature of his wisdom, Um, but we complain as those who trust in God alone and that God is good. Despite the storm that we are in the midst of, he is holding us. He is, make no mistake about it, he's in the midst of all of this, holding his church, even sustaining his church, even to the point where he is blessing his church. So make sure that we understand together, as the hymn writer said, even when our fear is that our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. And when the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold us fast. Despite the trials that have come, our foundation is sure. Our rock, our God, our eternal rock is our foundation and he will not change. So brothers and sisters, in the high times and in the low times, trust him. Let's go ahead and read our text for this morning, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to your word asking for you to bless us. We want to be like Jacob and wrestle, pleading with you to bless us in the midst of our struggles. We ask, Lord, that you would do a great work of redemption and sanctification in our midst and in our city and, Lord, in our world. We pray this morning, even for the Riyal Malayu people who have not heard. We pray, Lord, that you would break in with the gospel and do a work of redemption. 
We pray that the preaching of the gospel around the world would bring forth fruit this morning, that Jesus Christ would be magnified, and Lord, that you would shine your light into darkened hearts. Lord, we know that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but God, you are the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. We know that you alone can shine that light of the gospel into darkened hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would do that today. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus clearly and to love him as our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, last week we got into Paul's first spiritual blessing in chapter one, verses four through six, his election, his gracious choosing of his people to himself for adoption as sons. Paul taught us that election declares the gracious, the gracious nature of God's love and blessing for his people. It's not just random blessings. It's one that show that we did not deserve at all any part of this blessing. The whole first point is that we did absolutely nothing to deserve this choosing. And the end, we stand back and we marvel at his grace. I confess, even last week, in the midst of things going really well, as things continue to carry on as they always have, when I have my ducks in a row and all seems fine, I often forget my own need for grace. I often forget that it is God who holds all things in his hands. And consequently, I, I think that I'm trusting God, but it's possible that I'm not trusting God. The truth is, I'm, I, I sometimes it takes for me the fury of a storm of sin and struggle and rebellion in my own heart to see my need for grace, uh, my need for him to act in my life. So having just learned this lesson, of course, last week we really pointed this out and worked on it. Having learned that lesson, I, I tried regularly this week to think that through and to come to his throne knowing that I needed grace and knowing that I needed to reach in him and ask him to bless and to help me. And I'm trying to, just like we are each day, I'm trying to walk by faith, to trust him. But sometimes, I'm not sure if, um, I don't think I'm unique in this, but sometimes I just don't really want to. Sometimes I feel cold and uh, lazy and I just don't want to approach him. I feel like I'm fine. And I realize a lot of this is that I just have some spiritual deadness. I choose to do things kind of as though I naturally just keep on going on. Let's be honest, sometimes when we read our Bible and spend time alone and, and pray, it can often seem like a one-sided conversation, as though sometimes I'm just speaking to the wall. Um, like, we're, Of course, we're convinced that God hears us and that this is a good thing that we ought to do. It's a good duty, but sometimes it seems like we don't get much back in return. There are several reasons that we struggle with these kinds of things. Uh, but today, I, I just want to point out one for us. I think that many of us treat our Christian walks as an intellectual journey, as though what we're trying to do, we, we, we think that if we learn more stuff, then we'll grow more. Um, if, if, we, if we know more about God, um, then we're getting closer to him. That's, that, those are the corollaries. Like if we learn the right biblical techniques, 
then we will be able to fight sin. Like if, if we just learn all of the ins and outs about God's sovereignty, then we will understand stuff and life will be easier because we got the right understanding. We're discouraged when we don't spend good time in the Word, um, not because we didn't get God, but because we didn't do our part, and therefore we're disappointed with ourselves. Like, oh, we just didn't get there this week, and I wasn't very good, since we know we need to feed ourselves on the Word. We love it when we have great theological discussions with one another, or we read good theology, or we get to spend some time in the Word, um, you know, and get these different maybe epiphanies that we didn't have them before, and we hadn't considered these before. And sometimes the problem is that we equate that with spiritual growth. That if we come to a new understanding of something, then we must have grown spiritually. And somehow it makes us more holy. We obviously believe, you know this to be true, we, we believe, that's how we're doing this in his word this morning, that the study of God's word is vitally important. We are convinced that Christianity is based on reality. And the rigorous research is important as we look into his word and understand it pro properly and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to one another and to our own selves. But when Jesus is asked about the most important commandment, the one that is most important to get right, he responds with an answer that cannot be accomplished with all the study and with all the knowledge in the world. He tells them, and consequently us, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the most important thing to get right. He tells them, when he talks to these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, he tells them to treasure God with all of our being, to treasure him above all other things. And that's why it's the first command. The second command follows it, of course, to love our neighbor as ourself. You see, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind demands that you and I are all in. Like the everything, every bit of us is given over to loving and trusting him. But the problem that we all have on a consistent basis is that we grow cold and we struggle and our natural eyes see all the stuff around us and we feel further and further away from him. My problem often is that I'm not all in. I don't love him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind. I don't love him with every part of my being and I, sometimes I don't treasure him above every other pleasure or comfort or thing. Sometimes in practice, I see him as a really important part of my life, but I don't see him as my life. And to be honest, this is a really discouraging place to be. It, it ends and, and tends toward doubt and struggle and even more sin in one sense, because we become, become fearful that my standing isn't quite right, or I start doubting myself. I can't feel him. Is, is he really there? You know, I, I don't like what I'm getting in my life, so is he really good? Um, I haven't done a very good job seeking him in the Word. You know, have, have I done enough to actually prove that I do love God? All those questions and all those doubts and struggles cannot be fixed by some sort of intellectual process of downloading theological information. That won't cure us. What I mean is that plunging ourselves into Bible study may be very good, but it may also be a very bad idol if we're aiming at the wrong thing. Reading systematic theology can be a huge help, so good, 
or it could also be a total distraction if our motivations are corrupt. If you and I go to the Bible or do good theology and read good books or have good discussions with the feeling that we, we need to do this thing, so we do, we've missed the mark. When you and I go to the Bible or have a theological discussion about God or take in good theological resources for the sake of doing our duty, we'll sometimes get what we're aiming for. Sometimes we'll get the things we're looking after, like for information, or that we'll be able to actually check the box. We did it. Or we'll get some of those techniques that we were looking for and we, we kind of get them down pat. We'll feel much better about our Christian selves. We'll be distracted by good things and find good moral examples. But the problem is we won't get the most important thing, God. Getting more Bible knowledge or just making sure that we read the Bible, which is a good pursuit, or checking the box as a Christian will not help us love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds. What you and I need is to see him. What you and I need is to see him for who he truly is in all of his glory. And when we see him in all of his glory, we will begin to learn to treasure him. When we see him clearly, it will become apparent that he is amazing and we will love him. David says it this way in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't talk about just somehow you know it and make sure that you get the right information, but taste, experience, and see that the Lord is actually good. When we look at him, and experience him, and by that I mean we trust him in what he says, we'll see that there is no better God than our God. When we see him in his glory and realize all that he has done for us, his rebellious creatures, the ones that he made in his love, you and I cannot help but to begin to respond in love. This is what we are doing, by the way, in the book of Ephesians. We are coming today to see Christ for who he is. This is my goal as I try my best to help us see and taste, taste and see the Lord Jesus Christ today. My prayer has been this whole week and continues to be today that you and me would see him clearly and that we would listen to what Paul has to say, that we would humbly approach the text asking for God to bless us with his word. That as we look at Christ, we would know that he is good and that he is great and that he is gracious and he has interacted in a way that he is reaching to us and showing himself to be someone who is more than worthy all of our praise and love and adoration, our tasting and seeing and enjoying him as good. So let's go ahead and take a look at verse 7. We'll start here. Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, let me for a minute pull back and uh, try to help us remember where we are in this text. We, we drop right in here. If you remember, verses 13 through 14 is a benediction or a, a eulogy. It's a, a praise to God. In verse 3, Paul praises God because God has blessed us. He summarizes all of verses 4 through 14 by saying he's blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 4 through 14 outline four spiritual blessings, four parts of salvation history, all being accomplished in Christ. In verse 4, he chose us in him. In verse 7, in him we have redemption. In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 13, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is making it very clear that we experience salvation, all stages, in Christ alone. It's continually beat in. There's no other way around this. There is no election without Jesus. There is no redemption without Jesus. There is no inheritance for us without Jesus. And there is no sealing with the promised Holy Spirit without Jesus. In short, Our salvation, in totality, rests in our union with Christ. Now, last week we began with the first of these blessings. We talked about the fact that he chose us in Christ. An act of pure grace. God's blessing of a people who did not even exist yet. Paul made a big deal of the gracious nature of this wonderful blessing, this wonderful act of love. And with him, we stood back and were amazed by this grace to the praise of his glorious grace. We encouraged one another to not take it lightly, to not take it for granted, to not take his saving grace as something that we just all deserve, but rather to savor it, to believe it, to be thankful, and then to live in light of that truth, that he has given something that we do not deserve. Today, we'll move from eternity past the the act of electing before the foundation of the world, to recorded history, to our own time period. The world has been made. We kind of fast forward a little bit. And all that is within it, God has created mankind for a perfect relationship with him. But there has been a great rebellion. We know this. Man rejected God as the supreme leader, ruler, and decided to live as his own king in rejection to the true king who had made him. And because of this, God cursed mankind. Not only that, but all of creation groans and is held in bondage to corruption. That's Romans 8. And then in Romans 5, we learn that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul tells us uh, that in Adam all died. Not only is this physical death, although that's true, but Paul is really concerned with eternal separation from God, eternal spiritual death, where we're separated from God's presence forever in judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, we learn that Adam has done something terrible and that we with him have also entered into something terrible, death, separation, And because of his and our rebellion and disobedience, he plunged the entire human race into sin. Now, we know this. You and I know this all too well, though, because we know how we react to life. We know our wicked hearts. We know that we still want to shove God off the throne and climb on there ourselves, climb into the driver's seat to be the king of our own lives. Not only are we guilty because of Adam, but we actively commit sin against God. 
And we understand in our own time and space that we are trespassers, those who have sinned against God. And all of these things put us at odds with the perfect, righteous, just, and holy God who made us. Through our sin, we chose to be enemies of God and to stand condemned to die, not only physically, but like I said, to be separated and to be judged eternally. And we know, if you're tracking here, you know these are the first two parts of the gospel. The first part here, the truth that God is perfect and just and holy. That's good news, that God is who he says he is, and that man is accountable to his maker, to this God. But the second part is that man has hated God, has rebelled against him, and because of it, God must answer that sin with judgment. If he is to be a just God, there must be an answer for sin. And the truth is, we don't really like to talk about this part. I mean, it's really uncomfortable. We don't really like where this leaves humanity. We know from the word that God cannot be a God of justice if he does not punish those who sin against him. He must answer wrongs. He must punish sin. All mankind in time and space are imprisoned in this terrible reality, sin. The Bible speaks of this often. It talks us about this being bondage for us as those who are slaves to it. They continue in it and cannot wash this sin from their own lives. They are in the kingdom of darkness. That's Colossians 1.13. And those that are in this kingdom are called children of wrath. And that means that they have the wrath of God against them because they are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. They are destined to destruction for judgment from God's hand. But we know that there are two other parts to the gospel. This is not it. There's more. We know that such were some of us, me and you. We dwelt in this area. Ephesians 2 is going to be real clear about that and show us that that's where we were, that some were, these, this is what, who, who we were. We know that this, therefore, is not the end of the news. There is good news for us. And we've experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, with all that in mind, enter Paul. Paul goes from talking about God's election in our passage before the foundation of the world to God's redeeming work that he redeems his people within recorded history in time and space in our own time period. He says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul is reminding us of this great blessing. He's reminding us that we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage. You and I know this from Romans 6 so clearly. We could not help ourselves. We couldn't stop committing sin. Uh, we had no way to get rid of the sin that we had already committed that was already on us. And we were doomed for destruction. We had no way of freeing ourselves from the penalty of sin. We were running headlong into the wrath of God and we deserved every bit of it. But here, Paul is talking to us believers, trusters, saints, and he says, we have redemption. <laughs> Say what, Paul? 
Redemption? Yes. And he explains what he means. He talks about this in the exact verse here. Redemption, meaning the forgiveness of our trespasses. Yes, he's reminding them of the beauty of the gospel and what it actually does, what it accomplishes. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You have been liberated. You have been set free. Your sins are forgiven. You are no longer destined to destruction because you have been redeemed. And Paul talks about himself. We have been redeemed. But why would he use this word redeemed? Why couldn't he just say saved? Redeemed. Well, what he is doing for us here is he's showing that we have been bought. We have been like a slave who has been bought by a new master. There has been, get this, there has been a transaction for your soul. Something real had to happen for him to redeem us. Paul is making sure that we understand that this wasn't some sort of simple action where God puts some people over here and then he puts some more people over here. And he doesn't really have to worry about it because it's all okay. He owns everything. You know, he doesn't have to worry about paying the price for sin. Since he's God and all, it's totally fine. No. This this very act of redemption, the way that he talks about this, highlights the fact that he is a holy and just God and that he will and must answer sin. Because we have sinned against a holy God, he would cease to be God if there were not punishment for that sin. Consider that. This act of redemption screams out that God will be just, that he will do what is right, and that there must be a payment for this sin. The punishment for that sin is not money, is not great deeds of strength. The punishment for that sin is death. We know this, and all of us were headed to it. All of us deserve eternal judgment because of our sin against God. But how then could we possibly be saved and God still be just? How could he forgive our sins and God still be a just and holy and righteous God? How can he do that? Now, you and I, you know the answer. And he tells us in this verse, but we already know what's coming. He can forgive sin because someone else took the punishment for us. He can forgive sin because someone else was judged on our account. He did answer the sin of you and me. He can buy us, liberate us, and be our father because someone else paid the price for our sin. In him, we have redemption through his blood. This is the point. Paul isn't saying that Jesus' physical blood, the fluid that runs through his veins, was the price to pay. Some, somehow, if he had just let some of that out and paid it over, it would have been fine. No, he's using this idea of blood as an important connection to talk about the giving of his life as a substitutionary atonement for us. That he would be the one, the perfect sacrifice for us. Now, we've talked about this before, that big word, penal substitutionary atonement. But let us never grow weary of it, for it is the crux of our salvation, that Jesus Christ has taken our punishment in our place. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrificial lamb that was worthy to take upon himself 
all of my sin. But not only my sin, all of your sin. And not only just the sin at Cornerstone Bible Church, we have redemption. We, meaning the church. He took all of the sin of his elect church and had the wrath of God poured out on him to the point of death. How can we possibly be forgiven of our sin? It is only because Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself and was punished for that sin, taking upon himself the wrath of God. The fact that God redeems his people means he always punishes sin. It means that he will not allow sin to go out in the universe unanswered. But the price, the price is so high. Consider, Paul is showing us that this spiritual blessing is costly. This redemption is not just something that goes on as, again, he can kind of put some people over here and some people over there. What's going on here, the very fact that it is us receiving redemption means that there has been a cost. The Father pours out his wrath, his just wrath, not on something that he created, Instead, it's on the second person of the Trinity, on Jesus Christ himself, the perfect one. The one who had never experienced separation from the Father. We hear him cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can we for a moment think about this. Can we for a moment try to reckon with the immensity of this action that God would lay his wrath on Christ and would therefore be able to forgive our sin. That God, despite all my sin against him, despite my hatred of him, despite my rejection of him, despite my rebellion against his authority, that he would redeem me, that he would redeem you, that he would redeem his church. He he paid the price for you and me because we're so great, right? No. We know, if anything, here, this makes the most nonsense to us, that God would redeem people who hated him. What in the world? In the midst of our sin, In the midst of a life, in my own short life, I know the sin that I have committed. And some of you, I know some of the sins that you have committed. I don't know all of them, but I know some. And I know the the stories of Christians throughout history who have lived terrible lives of hating God and disrespecting Him and doing everything they can to rebel against God. And Christ took the penalty for that. He took our iniquities so that God would lay his wrath on Jesus. He received the punishment that you and I so much deserve. And again, we know how we've rebelled against God. He punished Christ for our sin. And we understand that that punishment is not just for our own time, but rather for all of the saints throughout all of history, all the ones in the past and all that are to come. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sin forgiveness of our trespasses. Our redemption was paid for for by the Son of God 
who gave himself for us. This is the heart of Paul's second point. In Christ, we have redemption. This is what we're supposed to get out of this point. But he's not finished. Notice here that he's going to tell us the cause and, uh, of this redemption and the character of this redemption. Look at it again at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul says we have this redemption because our God is a gracious God. And, and this action that we are experiencing, this redemption in Christ, this forgiveness of sin, is a gracious action. You can even say he is rich when it comes to the way that he gives out grace. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because of what we already saw from the first blessing. We saw that the whole nature, we learned from the dawn of time, before the foundation of the world, God acted to choose us all out of his own grace, not out of how great we were. Not one single thing within us caused us to deserve his grace. How much more now, when we stood as enemies against God, how much more now is this a gracious action that you and I do not deserve? In the midst of our hatred, he redeems us. He is acting out of his own will, his own purposes, and it declares to us that his will and purposes are good to his people. His will is to choose a people who do not deserve to be chosen and to redeem a people who do not deserve to be redeemed. In fact, they have purposefully acted against him, and he still redeemed us. He still redeemed us. What a gracious God. A God who acts to redeem his people according to the riches of his grace. Now at this time, Paul in his argument here, in his, in his eulogy, he kind of goes off on an important side trail, a very important side point about this grace that leads to redemption. He kind of uses the nature of this redemption, this gracious nature, to talk about the larger, more ultimate purposes of God. He's going to do this in verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me go ahead and read, starting at the end of verse 7. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this seems like Paul <laughs> is really getting into the weeds. Like, why did he bring this up? I thought we were talking about redemption. Now, we're all of a sudden, we're talking about the mystery of his will to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. What is all this about? Well, if you remember, we actually spent quite a bit of time looking at this chapter when we talked about the purpose of the book of Ephesians. Paul is going to take this opportunity to tell us that our redemption in Christ, this grace that we received, has an even bigger purpose than just the redemption itself. It is wonderful. We've already even explored the incredible, gracious nature of this redemption. It's not any lesser but that it's the first fruits of what is to come. Something even greater. That this is part and parcel of that and shows us that there's something even greater coming. Paul is helping us understand that in Christ, in the act of redemption, 
God has lavished this redemption grace wisely and insightfully on us, which is worthy of our praise, but also our notice. That we ought to see and say, whoa, something else is going on. What I mean is that Paul is helping us see that in our redemption, in him lavishing his redemption grace on us, he revealed the mystery of his will. And if I can uh, just jump down the rest of this phrase in verse 10, the mystery that is being made known is that he will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Quickly as an idea here, what he means by mystery is not that we have to go find it and it's underneath a rock somewhere. What he is saying here is that previously it was not known. And in this action, He is revealing it to his church. And it is not something that those who do not love God can understand. It is the mystery that only is revealed through the Holy Spirit's work in believers, those who trust and know and love him. Because the truth of the gospel is foolishness to all those who do not believe. And so as we look at mystery, we realize that he is unveiling what's about to happen in the consummation, in the rest of history, as he brings all things into subjection to himself. In other words, this act of redemption that we're talking about in verse 7 was the first part of what he is doing to bring all creation, that creation that groans, remember? Bring all creation back into perfect harmony in him. If you remember, he told us in Colossians 1.20 that he would do this. He says, and through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things, um, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He, he's, he's getting at the exact same thing here. That somehow in Christ, in what he did at redemption, there's far-reaching ramifications, even more than just the redemption of the church. He is showing us the mystery of his will. Paul is saying, in lavishing this redemption grace on us, he does so in wisdom and insight. Verse 8, his plans reveal himself and the mystery declares his wisdom his unsearchable ways, and the glory of his knowledge. We see who he is, and that in this act, we both receive grace, but then we see more than just our own redemption. He is showing us the mystery of his will in accordance with his purpose, as he says in verse 9. Or like we saw the word last week, not just purpose, but good pleasure. That this is what he desires to do. That these things are in accordance with the heart of God. He wants and wills and purposes to do these things. And in verse 9, you see that's the purpose purpose that is set forth in Christ. Or you could say that's God's good pleasure to set forth, publicly display this in Jesus Christ. And when Paul says that it is set forth in Christ, he is talking about this redemption that we just talked about in verse 7. All that Jesus accomplished in reconciling sinful men to God is a picture, kind of a a first fruits, is a way to show us that God has begun his plan of total reconciliation of the world. And then in verse 10, he makes it even more clear. He says that this act of redemption, the one according to his good pleasure, the one set forth in Christ, is set forth as a plan for the fullness of time. 
this public display of Christ, our redemption, what we're experiencing now is headed toward him, administrating all that God has in store for reconciliation in the fullness of time. In other words, kind of like when the time is ripe, we, we know obviously we are not there yet. We still function in this world. All things have not come in subjection to him. Obviously, he's not there, but we know that it is near. And when he has everything in its proper place, he will, as he says in verse 10, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When the time is right, all things will be summed up in Jesus Christ. All things in heaven and on earth will be summed up in proper unity before God. We talked about this, but if you remember, Paul's proclaiming cosmic reconciliation, that it's coming, and it means that there's a day coming where there will be no more enemies allowed to take shots at God. There will be no more time where people can operate against God. There will be a time when all competing powers will be subject to him, and he will be the only king left standing. All things will be united in Christ. And here we are, here we are in the age of redemption, experiencing the present realities of being redeemed, experiencing forgiveness of sin in Christ before all things have been united in him. It hasn't happened yet. With the promise that he will indeed bring all of history to a close and that all will be perfect and right again in subjection to Jesus Christ. Wow. This is the redemption that we are experiencing. This is the second blessing that he is talking about. And this, what I mean by that is that there's the first blessing of he chose. Now we're looking at the second blessing, the spiritual blessing that he says that he, we have redemption in him. Not only is God gracious enough to choose us before the foundation of the world was made, but his grace extends to the redemption of rebellious sinners who had mountains of sin stacked up on their account and who could do nothing about it for themselves. He lavishes his grace on us. It comes from the riches of God's grace. Paul really kind of, he can't help himself but to gush about God's grace. This idea of lavishing God's grace, riches, these ideas that are big and bold to help us understand the incalculable grace that is given to us in the substitutionary atonement. And all that is pointed in, all this is pointing to the grand finale. When we, when he will unite all things in Christ. In him, we have redemption the forgiveness of trespasses. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For those that do not know this God, who do not trust him, who do not love this God, who have not experienced his grace, if you have not bowed your knee before him and trusted him 
alone. Friend, please listen to the gospel. There is hope, but there is only hope in Jesus Christ for you to turn to him, to repent of your sin, and trust him alone to be your savior. May it be this day that you trust him and receive grace, receive Christ, receive his righteousness, and understand that Jesus Christ died for your sin. So if I ask you, repent of your sin. Turn to Christ and and ask him for forgiveness. It is free in him. We can do nothing to pay for it. It is out of the riches of his grace. But, But friend, don't think that you can do it. Don't think that you can make it on your own. You cannot have forgiveness any other way, and you cannot pay for your own sin. The only way that you can know God is through accepting Christ's payment for you as a sacrificial lamb, the perfect one. Turn to God for forgiveness and for his righteousness as you lean on him alone to be your substitute. He alone can save and he alone can purchase you and through him alone can you have redemption. Brothers and sisters, I turn to you now. In all of this, we talked at the beginning of our own cold hearts, of our own struggles, of our own distancing of ourselves. But we saw today what we have in Christ. We looked at him, the one who gave himself for us, the God of the universe who planned this before time. We understand that before the foundations of the world were laid, that Christ was slain and that we were written in the book. Do you understand the grace of our God? Do you understand the immense cost to him? Not to us. We could never pay for it. We would be judged for eternity in separation from God. But do you understand in his gracious act that he has redeemed you? He has redeemed me. He's redeemed us. And through that redemption, he shows that he is a God of reconciliation and that he will one day unite all things in Christ. So, as you're in my heart, struggle up and down, back and forth with doubt, being cold, lazy and selfish, and all the different things that distract us from finding our, 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 our joy in God, may we look to this truth. May we find it be true, looking to our Savior, to trust Him alone. May I encourage us then, This is one thing to remember, but there's so many others. But may we, through this then, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your grace. We are overwhelmed by the fact that you would give yourself for a people who hated you. In the midst of our rebellion and rejection of your authority, you died for us. You gave Jesus Christ so that we might receive redemption so that we might be adopted as your sons and daughters. Lord, we're overwhelmed by this. We thank you for your grace. We ask that we, our hearts together, our hearts would be warmed, that we would love you, that we love with your heart, soul, and mind, all of us, that we would be all in. And Lord, as we continue to, to struggle and go away, may we continue to look to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. May we see him and taste that he alone is good. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.